Meditation. 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 Depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, I feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice... I can't think of anything. This is Meditation in the City. The Shambhala New York Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Cultivating Compassion in the Time of COVID. The pandemic created so many different types of suffering and uncertainty, and it is difficult to hold all of them in our mind while also trying to maintain our own balance, health, and safety. In this episode, we will explore and practice awareness and compassion. How do we continue to take care of ourselves as well as the world all around us after living through one year of a global pandemic? Today we're joined by Acharya Eric Spiegel. Eric Spiegel has been a student and teacher in the Shambhala tradition since his teens. His teachings are filled with warmth, humor, and precision. Here's Eric to take away the discussion. The Buddha taught that the first noble truth that he taught or the first teaching he gave was the all-pervasiveness of suffering or dukkha, which, and then he taught a path, a way to understand that and a path to overcome it or to transcend it. And because the uh, sort of nature of the problem, you could say, is that beings are in suffering and discomfort and dis-ease that therefore the path that he taught uh, to work with that is the path, path of compassion. But then when we practice, mostly we practice shamatha meditation, which is tranquility meditation. So I thought I would talk a little bit about the uh, journey that brings us from shamatha to this idea of engagement and um, uh, working with the suffering of the world, of the universe. In general, meditation has two aspects. Uh, The first is deepening, which is that we look inwards and we, um, we, we turn away from all of our distraction and we turn our minds inward and we let it settle. And we draw it in that way. We kind of we draw it towards quietude, which is what shamatha is. The further stage is, um, uh, sense of expansiveness, vastness. So the first stage is going deeply and the second stage is opening to vastness. The stage of deepening actually has two stages which are called shamatha and vipassana. And so shamatha is really the tranquility part and um, vipassana which is usually translated as insight, as in Vipassana Meditation Center and so on. But in the uh, Tibetan tradition, Vipassana 
has a different meaning than the Vipassana that's uh, the way it's taught at the Vipassana meditation centers. Um, in, so the first stage is that we have our wild mind and we uh, practice placing our awareness. So it's called uh, trinpa, mindfulness, placement. So, and this is really the practice of mindfulness that we uh, draw, we work, and it takes years, as most of us know, years and years, and maybe, I mean, I've been doing this 49 years, and it's certainly still going on, that the movement of our mind and the karmic, the karmic wind kind of that we come into our life and uh, being with is so strong that we have constant distraction and constant uh, angry thoughts about things and constant desirous thoughts, for lack of a more creative way to say that, about things and we're constantly wanting or hating or liking or disliking or going towards or going away and attaching and detaching and and um, creating millions and millions and millions of karmic webs and then so the practice of mindfulness is that we place our mind on the object usually our breath and then generally it just completely slides right off. And then we notice that and we place it again. And then it slides off in some other direction. Uh, and it does that over and over again. And in the teachings on shamatha, uh, you know, they, the teachings go th through nine different stages. And, and the first stage, which is like, can you stay with your breath, your, have your awareness remain present for seven breaths? And that takes a really long time to actually have your awareness stay present for seven breaths. And particularly the way that we practice in Shambhala and in most of the Tibetan traditions, which is a very, sort of a very gentle technique, not kind of... Um, pushing away our thoughts, but really just quieting down. <clears throat> what happens when we quiet down is that we start to actually discover our own, uncover our own nature. And the way this happens, you could say, is that um, most of the time we're so caught up in our mental uh, activity, looking around, thinking things, cogitating, digesting, and so on. And as that starts to settle, then our uh, center of awareness moves from um, here down to here. So we don't, we're not doing away with this. In a certain sense, we're just really rebalancing uh, the, the, the two major, uh, you could say, operation centers. And we're bringing the heart forward. 
And so that process is called insight or vipassana, and it's practiced uh, in a couple of ways for people who have done Shambhala training. Um, <clears throat> one of the ways it's practiced is through a very open resting meditation, uh, which is taught in level five of right, Shambhala training. And then another major way that it's done, is that Vipassana is practiced is through um, inquiry, that we actually look and try to see where wisdom abides. Where we abide, where is my mind? And when we do that, we discover that it doesn't have any uh, abiding and it doesn't have any origination. It simply is uh, a manifest, an energetic manifestation of empty awareness. Through the dis um, sounds like that. The way I feel like I'm saying this is a little too serious and it's actually really quite a, a the emphasis here is on our heart. So it's not just, you know, intellectual. It's really that we open up. We actually discover that our nature is openness and that our nature is um, uh, <clears throat> present and knowing and light by nature. And that's the, how we actually discover our bodhicitta, our awakened heart. And that awakened heart instantly connects us. There's no separation between discovery of insight and the arising of uh, compassion, the arising of knowing the suffering of others and feeling the suffering of others. It's not so immediately from the deepening, the opening occurs, that we go from our minds being completely caught up with concept and all the fury of our thoughts and emotions to settling and that settling instantly sparks or is itself openness. And it doesn't necessarily happen in a stable way that, that we, this tames and then that opens, but there are glimpses and glimpses and glimpses and all of us have been having glimpses since we were um, babies because this in fact is our nature. So it's there. And just whenever, but it's often so blocked by the intense stream of thought that it, uh, we only see it in flashes and gaps when somehow something breaks through, you know, like a sunbeam breaks through our cocoon or, um, or a startling event occurs uh, and so on. So the taming has two parts. And then last week I actually talked about bodhicitta. Bodhicitta also has two parts, which is 
absolute bodhicitta, which is our basic nature, which in Shambhala we say is basic goodness or basically good. And in um, Sanskrit, we say bodhicitta, which is awakened heart. You know, so that's actually considered to be, from the Buddhist point of view, the nature. The nature is basic goodness. The nature is awakened heart. And from a Western perspective, that's just so um, completely new and different, you could say. Um, so I want to talk for a few minutes about suffering, because the moment that we become aware of our heart, we become aware of how much pain there is. And this is what the Buddha taught, that the universe is filled with suffering, dukkha. And traditionally in the Dharma, we say, it's said that there are three basic categories of suffering, and we all experience all of them. The first is the basic suffering of pain, which is um, sort of the really heavy suffering of people that people experience living in wartime or in famine or pestilence. Uh, or natural disaster, the things that are just like cosmic events of just incredible amounts of sorrow and loss. The second is maybe a little bit lighter, is called the suffering of change or the suffering of alternation, which means that whatever you have, it's not going to last. So when you're, you have your, you're coming into your, the best part of your life, you're in your 30s, you have your um, family or your career or your artwork or whatever it is that you have, and you have your vivaciousness, and clearly it's not going to last. All of those things will change. Uh, you uh, I had the experience um, in the 90s of renovating an apartment and experiencing moving in while the workers were just finishing uh, the work um, because, you know, they still had some things they were working on. And while they were still there, parts were already starting to fall apart. Uh, you know, something in the kitchen would break while they were working in the bathroom. And so, um, and obviously aging is part of that and relationships are part of this uh, pain of suffering of change. Of, um, even if your relationship lasts, it only lasts because uh, you've managed to navigate the byways of change and growth and um, <clears throat> evolution. And the last of the three types of suffering is called the um, uh, suffering of conditioned existence, which is really the suffering that all of us experience on a regular basis of the, the uh, pain of being born, the pain of illness, 
the pain of relationships ending, the pain of uh, growing process of uh, not fitting in to our old life or our old clothes or or our hair graying or or thinning or um, and so the sort of the suffering of just uh, so samsara is called conditioned existence uh, and samsara means uh, cyclic existence sort of the cycle of birth to death that all of all beings have gone through from beginningless time on earth that uh, at any given moment there are billions of different kinds of beings and if you include in, just thinking of literal uh, three-dimensional beings and you include insects there are billions being born every minute and every day and and also dying and everything every single being is striving towards something and at the end you know um, people pick through your things and then they take what they want and they throw out the rest and um, maybe they remember you for a little maybe a few people remember you for a little while so that's the pain of cyclic existence and the, what really made me think of this is that uh, a day or two ago i was listening in the morning to the brian lehrer show on wnyc which is one of my morning um something I, a show i just think is absolutely wonderful and it was a show with uh, talking about the sudden new um, limitations on immigration and people were calling in and telling their stories and it's every possible story and you know people are caught in this sudden change of whim of Donald J. Trump and they've been working on immigration for themselves or their family or their fiance or their children or their parents for months and years and they've spent money on it and their papers are somewhere in process and every part of it has a different um it's like really a picture of samsara you know your visa expires on this date and but this and so you just have this window but all of a sudden that window is now closed for 60 days and we don't know if it'll open in time for that to happen. And, and just the incredible heartbreak of all these people who are like just, you know, based on a tweet thrown into a really a nightmarish, sad situation, painful situation. I would love to like to open this up to any kind of questions or discussion and hear from you and see how you are. And hey, Charlie Spiegel. David. Hey. How are you? Good. How are you? Um, I, I've always struggled with knowing when to do Tonglen. Uh, like, if I'm I, I feel like I still need to settle my mind a lot more in shamatha. Um, so I guess like what stage do you know when you're ready to do Tonglen or should you be incorporating it in your daily practice at any stage or? 
once a week or something like that? Yes. So traditionally in Shambhala, and I think I said this last week for people who were here last week, traditionally in Shambhala, this was only taught, you weren't given Tangla and instruction until you took the Bodhisattva vow, which is actually a quite advanced stage for many people, and many people have been practicing for several years or more before that they reached that. And then years and years, 20 years ago, Pema Chodron started teaching Tonglen broadly, uh, which kind of shifted that landscape gradually. And I think that it's um, particularly at a time when people are suffering, when there's an upsurge of suffering, which on some level you could say is the entire uh, modern era, or you could say it's the entire Donald Trump administration, or you could say it's the time of COVID-19, whatever you like, or you could say it's the time of Hurricane Maria, or of uh, any kind of particular disaster where suddenly there's this surge of uh, heightened suffering, then it is, there's no reason not to do it. And in general, uh, your thoughts that um, uh, you're not stable enough to, one's thoughts that they're not stable enough to do this, uh, on some level, probably that's true. <laughs> and on another level, you could leap beyond that. Okay. So on an ongoing basis, it's entirely up to you. In this particular time, if you feel the heightened suffering in the world, it's something that you could, and I would say should, or anyone could or should include in their practice. So in your practice means if you sit 10 minutes a day or 10 minutes three times a week, then there's not really space or time to do something like this. But if you sit, 25 or 30 minutes several times a week, then within that, you could take, say, 15 minutes and just let your mind settle, and then, say, five minutes and do a real session of Tonglen, and then five or 10 more minutes, or if it's 30 minutes, five or seven minutes, and do for Tonglen, and then three or five more minutes to do Shamatha. So um, just always making sure that the ground is basic the ground is basic goodness so that's sort of brought forward through our shamatha and um and um you know sometimes people don't trust that their mind is that stable uh, but um there's some combination of of um, sometimes we haven't fully actualized something, but our aspiration or our commitment is, uh, is actually part of the journey and also and a big step forward. So sometimes you can just um, rely on that. Okay. Thank you. And I think, you know, so I think it's really up to you. And then the other thing is that Tonglen can be practiced on the spot. So if suddenly you become aware of something that really strikes you very sharply, you can just go directly into this exchange of self for other. 
you know, that's like called, that's basically on the spot tumbling, where you just for a few moments or, a, or 30 seconds or a minute, you just stop thinking about your love life or food or whatever. And just, you know, I know, I know none of you think about your love life or food, but <laughs> so, um, and, and you all have, we all have higher thoughts most of the time, but just stop and just turn because you, it's called to you. It's, it's, the world has awakened your heart. So turn that into a practice rather than just kind of another sense of being confused about what you should do and how, and how bad things are. Hi, Acharya. Hi. So this is, Tonglen is new to me. And, you know, I just heard your talk last week. And I had an experience this week where someone dear to me who I knew had COVID and I had been talking to through the week and was okay. Um, I got a call at 11 o'clock at night that they were in the hospital, you know, by themselves because no one else can be there. Um, and their doctor had told them to, because they are at risk in certain ways to, to go get checked out. So, um, there was about a, an hour, an hour and a half. So there was an initial brief conversation uh, of speaking to this person who is beloved to me, who was very upset, you know, to be at the hospital and terrified and has three young kids at home. And, you know, um, there was about an hour and a half before I spoke to her again you know, after some tests were run and she was waiting for more tests. So she and was at, you were speaking to the person who went to the hospital, who was at, who was being admitted or being tested. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, she was, she's, she has COVID. Yes. So yes, she, they yes, were doing right. other tests to blood yes. clots and all kinds of things. So there was a period of time from which I first learned this and she had been kind of okay on a daily basis or at least telling me that. So there was like an hour and a half where I, all I wanted to do was to be there with her, you know, to hold her hand, to be there. And there was no way to do that. There's no way for anyone to be with her. And um, it didn't occur to me then, but it's occurring to me now, you know, sort of hearing the practice again, that this might have been a way to sort of take in everything she was feeling um, into my heart. And then put that back out to her that way. And I felt like I was doing that in my head. You know, I wanted to do that. That was my intention. Um, I just didn't feel like I had a practice or a tool or a process through which to do that. 
And I was really at a loss. I mean, until I spoke to her, you know, on the other side of that test, which was a good result, and she was much calmer and whatever, it was, I, I felt connected to everyone else who has a loved one in the hospital who couldn't be there and didn't know what was happening and whatever. Um, and I guess I'm just wondering if you could speak to this practice in a moment like that. Yeah, I think, um, where are you, Ruth? Are you in New York? I am. Okay, just curious, just placing you. So uh, I think that it's um, just really what you said, you know, that the there's two ways you can go about it, basically, or you can freak out and just be in anguish and, you know, um, pull your hair out and cry and wail and mourn, um, which sometimes part that part of that is necessary, is a necessary part of our existence and our reaction. But then, but in the long run, that doesn't really, that uh, on some level doesn't help anyone and doesn't create a stronger sense of being. And so, um, so sometimes there's like an instant an instant reaction of really just loss of ground and freaking out in different ways and that freaking out is a bad word to use here but uh, just meaning it in all those different ways and then and then you start to get some space after a few moments or minutes or time and then you realize oh I actually have a practice and I can be of, I have, I can be of benefit. I can do something at least beneficial where I'm sending more positivity to the person and also to the world. And also, it's also taking care of yourself as well because you're also kind of generating your strength rather than generating your neurosis, your sort of uh, hyper neurosis, which, which is the sort of instant thing that arises at a time like that. You know, I'm, I mean, we've all had terrible, at different times, probably everyone has had some horrible thing that's, and you know, it's not, a bad thing to lose your ground. It's the natural thing. But then if you just perpetuate that drama, it's like, you know, very kind of um, uh, wailing and, you know, that somehow doesn't really, that doesn't really go anywhere at some point. <laughs> so could we, this is sort of, the next step of, of learning and growing. And I, I want to actually say something about like, well, how, what are we doing here in terms of the other person? So on one level, pro, in most cases, probably your Tonglen is not going to cure someone's cancer. That's probably true. And also, but there's a, in the 
Shambhala realm of uh, there's an interconnectivity of beings, which isn't really part of the Western modality, but is very much part of sort of the uh, Asian and also more, um, you could say, uh, uh, native traditions um, of any any country, you know, whether it's the Native Americans or Native early, you know, tradition, sort of traditional religions that are very much sort of earth and spirit and, and uh, energy based. Um, there's really an interconnectivity of, of all of us. And so if you are putting your energy towards something, that is alleviating some amount of distress. So even if it's not physically healing someone, it's alleviating distress. And people have in, in many, many, many situations in our Sangha in the Shambhala community, when people have been sick and and, the, and they're known broadly within the community and people really turn their practice to those, to those people. They've actually felt it and there's been a response. And, and I've had the experience of sitting with people and, who are very sick or dying and having them actually really feel that, that benefit. And I don't think that's just because of, of me. I think it's because of the power of this kind of practice. I hope that's, I hope your friend is doing better and continues to do better. Hi, Achara. Hi, how are you? Um, I'm good, thank you. My name's Ali. Hello, everybody. Um, this is the first time I'm joining the New York Sangha. I have uh, moved over from London about a year ago, so I haven't practiced in quite a while. Um, I have done the Shambhala training one and two, but forgive me if my question here is a little naive or I don't have the perfect terminology. Um, we'll let you know. Oh, no, just <laughs> so listening to what you're saying, I, I can kind of understand about passing this kind of positive warmth out to people that I know or even communities that I can imagine or perhaps I've heard about on the news. Um, but further than that, extending it to the rest of the world, um, it's hard to imagine how that kind of warmth and energy and movement outwards from the heart can land on people or how it dissipates to people that you don't know and that aren't part of your community. Um, does, do people need to be open to receive that or, you know, to give like a, a world of um, warmth? How do you yes. conceptualize that and, and imagine passing that that out to a wider, wider community. Yes. 
So part of this is literally just training yourself, training the mind, lo zhong, training the mind, that you're actually developing your muscle of compassion. On the other, so that's really, that's, I would say at that expansive stage, that really expansive stage, that's a lot of what's happening there is that you're working, ordinarily, we're so self-contained, we think, first of all, we think we exist. <laughs> we think we're real beings and that we, that there's, uh, which, uh, and which in, you know, in that, we look in the mirror and we think, oh, that's me. But we used to look in the mirror when we looked completely different or we were five years old and we looked in the mirror and we thought that was me. And there have been many, many versions of each of our me's that we disown at this point, but yet somehow we still believe that this one is truly me. And so, and so that's that. So we have this strong, strong habitual pattern of believing that we exist as entities, as solid entities. And this going out beyond is one way of breaking through that barrier. Is So that's part of it. So part of it is just that it's, we're breaking down the ba ba barrier of, uh, our, of ego. Mm -hmm. Another part is just developing this muscle of working with our own compassion. So you don't really need to spend the time to wonder if the people in Syria are hearing you. Okay. I'm, I, you know, Syria, Afghanistan, wherever, um, Mali. So, uh, or that's not it's that's the point there is really that you're doing it rather than that they're aware of it or and that through your doing it you're developing your power of compassion thank you so it's really there's a kind of there's both things that happen in tongue and one is you know, you're working with yourself and you're working with other. And it's not necessarily um, uh, equal at all times, you know, how, how it's felt and so on. Thank you. And all, you know, all things that we call practice, practice means we're, we're doing it. We're doing it as our own practice other people may it, it even our own shamatha practices affects other people because we become less neurotic and less invasive and less you know we become more aware so that affects other people but we're the ones doing it so nice to meet you ali i hope that um your life in new york is okay right now and that all, with all of the everything that things are stable or become stable. Thank you. Okay, so we could close for tonight. Uh, next week, uh, Elizabeth Reed, who's in our group here tonight and who is uh, Shastri, a senior teacher in New York, 
she and I will teach together next week. Uh, and we'll be doing this for a few more weeks and see what happens. I, I was sparked to begin this series just as a response to the current moment and feeling that teachings on Tonglen and compassion. So each session will include uh, some Tonglen uh, it's, or, and it may, it may switch over as we go through. So there may be one where we do something different, but we'll keep it uh, up to date on the website so people know what's coming. And uh, so many of you may not know the dedication of merit. I think I'll just say it. And if you do know it, you can say it with me. And if not, uh, you can just hear it. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of religion's wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. And then we could close with a bow. First gathering, coming into your present being, being physically and mentally and then tuning into your truly awakened heart. Let's just share that together. So thank you, everybody. Have a very good night and a good week, and be safe.